Israel, the people, Israel, the place. We'll talk about it today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I woke up today, it was actually early this morning, and I thought, what's today? What's Ah, it's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. That's how I remembered what the day was. Michael Brown, welcome to the broadcast. I've got one of my dearest friends, special guest in studio with me today, Scott Volk. We've got a lot to talk about regarding Israel, the place, Israel, the people. If you have a Jewish-related call, that's 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Your Jewish-related calls, warmly welcome. Scott, welcome back to the Line of Fire. Thank you so much. What a privilege to be here. Thanks for asking me to come in. Of course, absolutely. And we have another tour, May 11th to 20th next year. So it's less than a year away May 11th to 20th, we're going back to Israel. It, it's, it's a perfect time to go, isn't it, Scott? It's an amazing time. It's going to be uh, beautiful. Everything's going to be in bloom. It's not going to be too hot. But most of all, we're going to a land that God calls his own. And everybody that goes with us to Israel comes back saying, I can't believe I waited so long to go, and I can't wait to go back again. And, and Scott, how many, how many tours now have you led and been part of in Israel? I just got back on Saturday from my 33rd tour that I've gotten to lead. Oh, okay, so so hang on, hang on. Again, you've got Jewish-related calls of any kind, 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Now, now Scott, when you do the tour, it, there are variations. Each tour is a little bit different. You may have different people with different agendas, but basically it's a similar tour, similar ground is covered, and there's an awesome tour guide, Tish Michelle, she's done... She's done tours for Mike Huckabee and Glenn Beck and others as their chosen tour leader does it with us when we do them. Uh, she's out doing the tours. You're, you're there with the tour group every day. So you've done this now 33 times. Are, are you getting bored? Are you getting sick of it? Bro, I just got asked that question a week ago. And uh, the day I get bored with it is the day I'm going to stop doing it. But the, the, way, the way I kind of explain what hap- what's happening is it's like when I bring my children to a place that they absolutely love. The joy comes from seeing my kids totally and completely immersed in what we're doing. So uh, going to Israel and seeing the faces of the people as God's opening up their hearts and minds as we're, as we're standing on Mount Carmel and really understanding that this is where Elijah faced the prophets of Baal and people's eyes are wide open with wonder. That's what brings me so much joy. So I'll, I'll be there 133 times and not get bored as long as the Lord keeps sending people with us who are hungry to know more about the Jewish people in Israel, the Arab people in Israel, and God's heart for that land and that people. So, Scott, for years, I've been asked to do tours to Israel. I said, I have no desire to. I want to go there and minister. I want to go there and just pour into believers there, reach unbelievers. I have no desire to lead a tour. And then finally, you and some of my team persuaded me to do it. We did our first one a few years ago, and and then we did one two years after that, and then again. So we've had a, a break each year. But 
as I have seen people so incredibly impacted, just like you're saying, and, and they're impacted by, by the, the places and the, the history and, and the reality there. It's not a political tour. It's a, it's a spiritual, it's a Bible-based tour. They're so impacted that I'm blown away by how impacted they are and how, and, and how much they love being on the tour and how much you know, they can't wait to bring family or have others come. And then we've worked out a rhythm where I get, I get to do ministry as well. We have special night meetings and times just with our tour group. I pour in and answer questions. So I'm enjoying it. They're getting blown away. So for the first time, I'm going now two straight years. May 11th to 20th is our next trip. By the way, we're limiting numbers to two bus loads. That, that is what we're limiting numbers to. So that means that like 100 people max, which means it's, it's actually intimate because you're together all day, all night. You see each other. You build relations. You spend time with each other. And, and some ministries are able to have you know, 10, 20 buses, and that's great for what they do. But our purposes are, are more intimate, gets us better time together. But the sooner you sign up, the better. All right? So go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. You'll see the, the banner right on the homepage to find out more about the tour and to get your deposit in. So, so Scott, let me ask you a question. Because I mentioned at the outset there's Israel the place and there's Israel the people. So you have a heart for Israel and the Jewish people. You love the Muslim people as well. Your, your, your wife Beth is, is an Arab Christian. Uh, but recently there has been an upsurge of ultra-Orthodox uh, pushing back against Messianic Jews, trying to disrupt meetings and things like this. We're not saying that the people of Israel are perfect people. We're saying there's something about the land and the promises and the dealings of God that cannot be denied, and people have to go there to experience it for themselves. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, if there, if it was a perfect land and it was a perfect people, I'm not so sure God would have chosen them. I think that the, the very fact that there's imperfection there is the sign that God wants to come in and be glorified. When we can do things in our own strength, we can take credit for it. But when things are utterly impossible, like Abraham bearing a child at 99 years old, that's when the Lord is glorified. So this is anything but a political trip. And that, that's one thing that I'm really, really blessed by, because as long as there are people in governmental positions that are not given over wholly to the Messiah and to the King of Israel, there's going to be corruption, whether it's the American government or the Israeli government. But there are people in the land who are a specific fulfillment to God's prophetic word that he would regather people. I mean, this land was dead basically for 2,000 years. No Hebrew language, no Jewish people. And God has resurrected this land and this people. So in the days and seasons ahead, God's promises, as surely as he's drawn his people back into the land, that's how surely one day all Israel shall be saved. And he's using the nations of the earth to provoke Israel to jealousy. So as we go into Israel, we're going to an imperfect place, but we're going with the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world in our hearts, Mm. going to provoke the people of Israel to jealousy through the love of the Messiah. Jew, Gentile, American, Scandinavian, it doesn't matter. We've brought all sorts of people there, and the message still remains the same. We love the God of Israel, and we love the people of Israel. Yeah, and you know what's fascinating? Uh, I've been in the book of Isaiah a lot, dialoguing with a rabbi friend about certain chapters in the book of Isaiah. So reading it even more, meditating on it, listening to it on audio. And, and as, as, I've been, as I've been doing that, 
I'm struck by some things. For example, in Isaiah 1, God is rebuking his people in the most severe ways. And he calls the leaders, the, the, the rulers of Sodom. Hmm. And, and he talks about how he doesn't want their, their prayer or their worship because they're, they're so corrupt. And yet he calls them my people. <laughs> my people yeah. do not know. And, and then I'm, I'm right towards the end of the book of Isaiah. Now, just listening on audi- uh, Audible uh, as I was driving up to the office today. And, and there are these stern words of rebuke and correction for the people. I mean, harsh mm. words of rebuke and correction. And yet, right interspersed with it, love, 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 and I'm going to restore, I'm going to restore. Because he's a God who keeps his promises. Yes. And, and Scott, what I find so interesting is many Christians who preach grace, 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 grace. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. It's not by works. It's by God's grace. It's by God's grace. Then they turn around and when God deals graciously with the Jewish people, they have a problem with it. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's remarkable to me because I believe that the very picture of Israel is the picture of God's purpose for the earth. The fact that he has grace on a people. Not only does he call that land his land, but he calls those people my people throughout history. It's really something, bro, that you would even bring that up. And I am blessed that even when the people of Israel were exiled from that land, God told them that he would bring them back to his land and your land. So so it was Israel's even when Israel did not possess it. So our trip you know, many people say, "Well, uh, I don't want to go on some political trip to Israel." We we don't we don't uh, we don't not political at all. We go with a biblical paradigm. This is what God says, and the very fact that it might seem impossible now for that promise to be fulfilled does not in any way negate God's promise to Israel. So the people in the church who say God is through with Israel, I would say, wait a second. If you're giving up on Israel because they're not yet where the Bible says that they're supposed to be, you're giving up on a God who throughout history has taken utterly impossible situations and turned them into uh, situations where he's glorified. I was was on the phone last night with my dear friend James Robinson and he just wanted to share his heart with me about a few things and talking about the president and and where he's at and where he's not at and and, and, and etc and and he just began to open his heart he started to break down he was sobbing mm. just started to pour out his heart about the love of God he said why did why did God leave David in the Bible and why did God leave Solomon in the Bible and with all the sin they committed and yeah, we still have the Proverbs of Solomon and we still have the Psalms of David. Amazing. And, and it, it, that's, that's just a picture of, of Israel as a whole. Yes. God made covenant promises. Solomon's name at birth was Yedidah, which is beloved of the Lord, wow. beloved of Yahweh. Wow. And, and, and yet he was born to David and Bathsheba. Mm. So there's this extraordinary redemptive love of God. Yes, sin has tremendous consequences and nobody knows that better then the people of Israel have suffered over the centuries for the various sins we've committed and our shortcomings. But the fact is God keeps his word. That's right. And when you see Israel thriving as a nation today, not because of its goodness, but because of God's promises, right. that should encourage the church. All right, Scott, one minute before the break, quick testimony of something that happened on one of your recent Israel trips to one of the the folks on the tour. Yeah, we were just recently in Israel, and this gal who works for a very, very um, important uh, firm in the United States, mostly left-leaning, 
thought that our trip was a little bit political when, in fact, we had no political anything going on. We were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee Mm. uh, singing worship songs when you would think God would arrest her. No, it wasn't that. When they started singing uh, a, a, a Jewish song that talked about thankfulness coming back into the land, this girl comes over to me crying, saying, what is this mm. song about? What is?" It wasn't even a song about Yeshua. It was simply a song thanking God for bringing us back into the land. And this gal who was opposed to Israel on a boat on the middle of the Sea of Galilee was arrested by God. She went from being one who uh, despised Israel politically to one who embraced Israel with her whole heart. And I just saw her when I was there last week who said that that fire is still burning. God touches people's lives when they come to Israel. My friends, you can join us on this tour May 11th to 20th next year. So that's 11 months out. Now's the time to get your deposit in and pray about this trip. Sdrbrown.org, you'll see the banner on the homepage. Coming back and going straight to your questions. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the line of fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. I'm sitting here with my guest, Scott Volk. Scott will be joining in, and I'm going to save the tough questions for Scott. Thank you. So if you've got a Jewish-related <laughs> question, 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, I'm going to the phones in a moment, but I probably told this story before with, with Scott here with me. And if you're wondering why he's not on camera, he is so handsome. He is so charismatic and it just kind of glows that I may just walk over there behind your seat right now, bro. So people can see me. Yeah. Yeah. So it would just, (laughs) no one would uh, distract from me. No, no, no. Seriously. We want all attention to the Lord, but in all seriousness, our studio has been massively transformed, but it's set up for my daily live streams and all the video recording and production that we do in here. We do not yet have the extra camera. It's, It's a whole lighting setup and everything for a second guest, but at some point, that will happen, we trust. Okay, so the, the most famous Jewish scholar of the 1700s was called the Vilna Gaon, and he lived, I think, 1720, 1797, some, somewhere around there, and just one of the greatest geniuses in Jewish history. And the story is told that he was going into a town, so they all had heard about him. They knew the Vilna Gaon is coming, reputedly studied 22 hours a day, etc. this incredible genius. They're going to have all these questions for him. And, but they've never seen him, so they don't know what he looks like. So according to the story, he's, he's being driven in. It's through the night that his coach driver's driving, and the villain going realizes the coach driver's starting to get tired. So at a certain point, they stop. He says, here, I'll drive. I'll drive the rest of the way. And they're both Orthodox Jews. I'll drive. You get in the coach. So he drives up, and, and he arrives now driving the coach with the driver in the coach. So everybody, all the rabbis of the town, they, they surround the coach and they start peppering this guy with questions, thinking that's the villain like, oh, and he goes, those are so simple. He goes, my driver could answer them. <laughs> anyway, okay, I thought you'd enjoy that story. And with that, we go to the phones. Russell in Louisiana, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thank you for having me. You're welcome. What's your question, sir? Well, in a nutshell, my question would be, would unrepentant 
Israel, meaning the Israel that hasn't accepted Christ uh, yet as their Savior, would they be considered the harlot of Revelation 17? Well, why would you single out Jewish people who don't believe as the harlot of Revelation as opposed to the the world system or Babylon or, you know, people said the Roman Catholic Church or America? Or, you know, there have been all these different people or groups that... that that have been identified uh, so, with it. Why, why would you just say non-believing Jews? Um, because, and I don't. The, the reason why I'm asking you is because I I feel like I need a little bit of a little bit of guidance maybe on it. Um, I've been looking into it, and it to me when I read Revelation 17 and 18, uh, for instance, in Revelation 18, it says that in her was found the the blood of the prophets. And what else? Did, what else Jesus does it say? Similar language, right? Right. Uh, but what and, what and else? Saints, does it, what, what? Right. right of uh, all the I don't saints. have the Bible in front of me, but right. Exactly. The prophets and the saints. Right. Of all the and, martyrs uh, in history. So, so here's here's the deal, Russell. It's it's um, a it's it's a fair question to ask, and it's excellent that you're comparing language with, for example, Matthew twenty three and Luke thirteen, where Jesus talks about the blood shed of Jerusalem. All right. And some have tried to argue that Jerusalem is the mother of all harlots. But like I said, it's been arranged from that to the world system, to Babylon, or the Babylonian Empire in some reincarnated form, to America, to the Roman Catholic Church. But uh, notice it, 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 it speaks of her, uh, verse 4 of chapter 18, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. But it says, in her was found the blood of, of all the martyrs. Well, that's certainly not the case with, with Jerusalem. Uh, the vast majority of people being killed for the faith have been killed outside of Jerusalem and are being killed to this day. So there's a lot of debate about the subject matter of Revelation 17 and 18. I'm not sure myself, but it could be more the, the picture of a world system of some satanic entity that that is bigger than just any one of these various ones. And that's who's spoken of that. In other words, Babylon is a system that, that the great harlot is a system as opposed to one particular location or one particular organization. But there's room for differences in debate. The problem is one thing disqualifies another and another, dis, you know, no, no one thing seems to fit at all if we limit it in that way. 866-34-TRUTH. But thanks for asking. Uh, Scott, anything you wanted to add to that? I know you, that this is one of your specialty areas. I'm just, I'm just thankful that you're driving my chariot today. Uh, got coach, <laughs> coach, chariot. coach, okay. Well, I, I, all right, let's be honest. <laughs> Scott insists. on tra- Forget private jet. He has a chariot. Chariot oh with goodness. horses. Oh in in fact, when he goes to the airport, it's chariot with horses. There you go. And when he gets picked up, on the Israel tour, that's yes. his, the one thing he insists on. He doesn't care where he stays or anything else, but he must have a chariot with horses that's right. that, that greets him. Um, by the way, it's a great question. I, I just don't know that there's a simple the, definitive the one, answer. The one thing that I would add is it just, um, I, I do appreciate the heart in which he asked it, but it just seems like we're living in a day that is continuing to see anti-Semitism rise and with, with people, with Jewish people being pointed out 
as the harlot or, or, or this or that, although it may be a fair question, I think it's endemic of, if that's the correct word that I use there, of our current society where it seems like people are just pointing fingers at Israel and blaming them for, 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 for things that we can't even explain in the Bible. Like, crazy. Yeah, Israel is always at fault. The Jewish people are always at fault. And, and I, I'll say it almost daily. It's perfectly fine to criticize Jewish people. That's not anti-Semitism. It's perfectly fine to criticize Israel. That's not anti-Semitism. But when you demonize the people as a whole, when you demonize the nation as a whole, when you spread mistruths about the people in the nation, that's anti-Semitism. And I was just telling a a German grad from from our ministry school who ministers in the Middle East now to the Muslim community, he said in Germany, it's like deja vu. The, the rise of anti-Semitism wow. in, in Germany. And I told them I've confronted anti-Semitism in the church more in the last two months than probably the previous 47 years. Wow. It's, it's a shocker. All right. Uh, let's go to Salt Lake City, Utah. Russ, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thanks, Dr. Brown. I really enjoy your program. I uh, have a two-parted question, and that is, is on Zechariah chapter 14. And that is whenever all the nations come against Israel, and then there's the battle, and then afterwards, then uh, it's required that all nations will come up for the uh, festival of Sukkot, or however they pronounce it. Yep. Now, my <clears throat> the first question is, is this the Battle of Armageddon? And the second question is, is that when they have to come up, are they coming up by delegation, or will it be all of the people? Because if it's all of the people, you are talking about hundreds of million uh, flocking into into Jerusalem for that uh, festival. Right. But so, I will uh, hang up okay. and uh, listen to your uh, answer. All right. Great. Thanks for the question. Okay, num- number one... Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14 speak of all nations coming up against Jerusalem and God himself bringing them there for judgment. But obviously, it's not all the human beings because you have armies that fight wars. So when we had a coalition of of armies against Iraq and the Gulf War in the early 90s uh, and and fighting against Iraqi incursions into Kuwait, uh, that was not all the people. Those were armies for each, but that would represent all the nations. So certainly it's not going to be all the people. Plus, we have later in Zechariah 14 explicitly that the survivors of the nations that attacked Jerusalem, the survivors, will now go up to worship. So not everyone will turn against Jerusalem. Not everyone will will sin against Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So there will be survivors of the nations. They're They're not regenerate, but they will now go to learn of the God of Israel, and those that don't will be punished. That's what happens in the Millennial Kingdom where the Lord rules with a rod of iron. Uh, as to whether this is Armageddon, you could say this is part of the larger conclusion, part of the larger end of the world with Armageddon. And, and with that, Scott, when we do the Israel tour, it's only on the, the first full day that we're at Mount Carmel, and that's one of the places where I'll, I'll do a teaching during the day, and we'll, we'll look out over Armageddon, we'll look out over Armageddon. What what do you feel? What do people feel when they look out? And you realize that this history is going to unfold here. It's 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 amazing. I think Napoleon said that it was one of the most uh, prolific battlefields in the earth. This vast valley surrounded by mountains, 
um, in the middle of which is actually the Israeli Air Force Base, which is quite incredible. But people are blown away as they look out and they see the place where everything is going to come to a culmination. And, uh, you know, the, the caller made reference to people coming up to Jerusalem and celebrating the Feast of Booths uh, or Sukkot. It's really remarkable to me how, although that was first mentioned back in the, in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, uh, it's interesting to me that in the end, for, for those people who would throw out the Old Testament and say it's no longer relevant, <clears throat> in the end, People from all nations, not just the Jewish nation, are celebrating the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Yeah. That's how much God values that that land and that people. Yeah, and, and the quote attributed to Napoleon, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plane. You know, the first time I heard that quote exist, it was standing right there oh, wow. with our tour group a few years back. All right, wow. we'll be back with more of your Jewish-related questions, and we'll, we'll talk about some things going on in Israel, some recent developments, elections, other things like that. Remember, to join us on the tour, go to askdrbrown.org. You'll find it right on the home page. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown with my friend and colleague, Scott Volk. We're talking about Israel, the people, and the place, also our next tour, May of 2020, so May 11th to 20th. It's a perfect time of the year to be going, very special time. In fact, uh, to, to book everything was even more challenging because it's such an ideal time when so many folks go. So we're going to have a, a wonderful time, the amazing tour by day. We do meetings and Q&A and hangout time at night. You join me when I do a live radio show and minister the word to you and sit around and ask questions. It's just a, a very, very special, intimate, wonderful time. The info's on our website, sdrbrown.org, right on the homepage. You'll see the banner. Hey, I'm sitting here with Scott Volk, who organizes and helps lead our tours. And uh, we've got Kelly from Demora, Iowa. Uh, Kelly, you were on the trip with us back in 2017. Is that correct? Yes, I was. All right, was Kelly. This time, about about this time in 2016 was the very first time I spoke with you on the radio, talking about exactly that and asking your advice on how to learn a little Hebrew for the trip. Really? All right. So, so how did the trip impact you, sir? Well, I, I was a believer before, but it's just absolutely <clears throat> amazing. And it's ironic you were talking about Mount Carmel because I think for me that was probably the most impactful part of the trip. I, all of it was, but to sit there and look down upon that valley and it's like this is the footsteps of the prophet. My word. And you were speaking, and uh, Tisha and Scott were there, and it was just just amazing. I encourage everybody to go. I hope I can make it next May. Unbelievable. Oh, that'd be, yeah, that'd be amazing to see you again. And we, we've added some things where we're doing more stuff with everyone at night, so it gives more intimate time. 
Hey, have you learned a little Hebrew along the way? I have a little bit. Um, I ran into some people here um, in a few of the malls that are actually from Israel, and I'm, yeah. <laughs> I actually was wearing my IDF shirt, and they really perked them up. They couldn't believe it. Like, oh, wow, cool. I used to be in the IDF. Yeah, and well, most is, most every Israeli has served, unless you're an Orthodox Jew, male and female. Uh, Israelis, they've oh, all yeah. had to serve in the, in the IDF two years or three years. And many Israelis yep. work at malls. They're very social people, very outgoing people. Very. So all you often see them at malls. All right, Kelly, it would be awesome to see you again next year. God bless you. I'm trying. Thank you, Dr. Brown. All right. Thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. You know, Scott, I was just looking at some of the YouTube comments in our, in our live YouTube feed. And I noticed one fellow saying, uh, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. In other words, if you're saying there's an Israel in the natural, then you're denying the Israel in the spirit. And, and he said, I will oppose your Zionism. <laughs> I mean, the reason Scott and I laugh is you're not opposing us. It's not my Zionism. The same God who scattered our people, regathered our people. So your argument is with God. And your battle is with God. Mm-hmm. You can oppose you can oppose me, but it's not my Zionism. Mm-hmm. Look, Charles Spurgeon lived in the days before Zionism. He was not a dispensationalist. He did not believe in a pre-trib rapture. Mm-hmm. And the same with Bishop J.C. Ryle. These were two of the greatest leaders in the church in, in England in the 1800s. And they both plainly said, if, if there's anything plain in the Bible, it's that God is going to restore the Jewish people back That's to right. the land. That's and right. J.C. Ryle said, as, as far as he can see, they're going to come back to the land in unbelief right. and then come to believe in Messiah. Uh, Scott, why do you chuckle when, when I read those comments? Only because I think anybody can make Scripture into anything they want it to be. So many of us are predisposed from, from, from our childhood to think a certain way, and, and as am I. But uh, what's remarkable to me, Dr. Brown, is that there are Muslims— who are being uh, awakened in the middle of the night with visions of Jesus at the foot of their bed. Yeah. And not only are they bowing their knee now to the Messiah, but they go from hating Israel to loving Israel. And these are people who definitely were predisposed with the hatred towards Israel. But in its infancy, and uh, following the Lord in its infancy— you cannot read the scriptures without saying God has a special love for Israel, that God, God has put his name on that land, that he chose Jerusalem as the pl- place that his spirit would abide, his presence would abide forever. I love Charlotte, but God didn't say anything about his spirit abiding in Charlotte forever. It's Jerusalem. If you're Zionistic, then God is Zionistic. If people are opposing you, they're opposing God. That's why I chuckle. Yeah, and, and look, the fact is, you— you can believe God brought the Jewish people back to the land and not sanction everything Israel does. Right. You know, you know for example, there's a, a rising tide of, of uh, Jewish extremism. Uh, you have it among some of the settlers who are radical Orthodox and, and mistreat their Palestinian neighbors. You have it with ultra-Orthodox who continue to grow in population and in certain ways gain power and are overtly trying to push back against the gospel. We understand that. No, no one is trying to say this is the perfect people. But I'll tell you what, you, you go with us to Jerusalem and, and you go with us to the city, the old city, and you go with us to the wall, to the Kotel, the, the Western Wall, and, and you pray there side by side with Orthodox Jews pouring out their hearts and yeah. crying out for God's mercy for the coming of the Messiah. Yeah. It, it'll change your perspective. Mm. All right, let us go right back to the 
phones. And let's see. In Louisville, Kentucky, Matthew, thanks for holding. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you. Good. Uh, so I go to a, uh, a dispensationalist church, uh, and they basically teach that uh, the Jews won't come to Christ until he returns. And uh, mm. I, I have a few problems with that. It's the fact that Jesus said, uh, you know, when he was mourning over Jerusalem, that he wouldn't come back until the Jews said, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Yes, sir. And Peter said that uh, God would not send Christ until the Jews repented. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, you quoted Matthew 23, 39. You quoted uh, Acts 3, part of 19 to 21, where the heavens must receive the Messiah until Jewish people repent. So, number one, right. Paul makes plain in Romans 9 through 11 that in every generation there's a remnant. There are multiplied mm-hmm. thousands, tens of thousands of Jews who believe in the first century. And there's been a remnant. My guests, Scott Volk and I, are both Jewish on both sides, uh, mother and father, Jewish. Uh, Scott's parents came to the Lord before he did. So Jewish people are coming to faith left and right all over. In fact, there's an increasing number in the land of Israel. There are probably about 30,000 Jewish believers there. Now, that's a tiny part of 6 million Jews living in the country. But if you go back to the founding of the nation in 48, as far as known Jewish believers in Jesus in the country, as far as I know, there were less than 10, okay? It's going from wow. that to 30,000. There's a great harvest of Jews in, in, in Russia. Hundreds of thousands came to Jesus in a, a wave, oh, probably about 20 years ago in particular. Uh, Latin America, mm-hmm. the same thing. In America alone, probably several hundred thousand Jewish believers in Jesus, certainly at least 150, 200,000, if not substantially more. So Jewish people get saved like everybody else. Romans ten twelve. there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, richly blessing all who call on him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is doing his work. And what we're hearing about in the Muslim world and Muslims getting radically saved and then becoming lovers of Israel and the Jewish people, little by little, we're hearing about ultra-Orthodox Jews right. and they're coming to faith and, and they're awesome. experiencing the grace of God. And yes, in the end, a Jewish Jerusalem must welcome the Messiah back. So you're, you're now. The, so the final turning, the final transformation, is in conjunction with the return of Jesus. But we expect to see ever increasing numbers of Jewish people coming to faith. That's a major part of what I live for every day of my life is to see my people Israel saved. Anything to add, Scott? No. Would you just um, clarify something though, bro? Um, I've heard you speak about this, and I love it. In um, when David was apart from his people. He did not want to go back and assume his role as king yeah. until his brothers welcomed him back. Isn't that the case? What, what's that scripture? Because I think it's, it's a yeah. real picture of Israel and what Israel is supposed to do in order for the king, Messiah, to come. Yeah, so in, in 2 Samuel, we have the account of Absalom coming back from yeah. being exiled by David. He wins the hearts of the people. He becomes the king. David has to flee for his own life. Absalom is then killed in battle. And in 2 Samuel 19, uh, he's still in exile. He's still in the wilderness because of what happened. And, and what happens now is that the different tribal leaders, they reach out, David, you know, you're a king. We, we sinned. We, please come back and rule over us. But he won't do it. And he writes a letter to his own people because he's from the tribe of Judah. Mm-hmm. And he writes to the elders and said, why should you be the last to welcome the king back? You're my own flesh and blood. Yeah. 
So I see that as a great parallel. Love it. I'm, I'm not saying it's a prophecy. That's history. Right. But I believe that same principle will apply. Why should you be, uh, Second Samuel 19.11, ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You are my relatives, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back mm. the king? Mm. So I, I see that as a prophetic parallel of what's going to happen. God's saying, yeah. wonderful. Absolutely wonderful that the gospel is going out all around the world and God's heart beats for the nations and the multitudes are saying Maranatha, saying it's Maranatha, our Lord come. Yeah. And Jesus is saying this is wonderful, but, but what, what about my own people? Right. And, and here's what's interesting. When I was in Israel last year and got surrounded by these ultra-Orthodox Jews and and, and some of them spitting on the ground at the mention of the name of Jesus. And one guy, this counter-missionary disruptive, calling me a you know, missionary, trying to get me arrested and all this. And it, it was, I mean, I was arrested, but there was nothing to it. It's just another part of the adventure. But I, literally, and Scott, God knows this. As I'm talking to these ultra-Orthodox Jews, and my modern Hebrew is, is, is weak. My biblical Hebrew is strong, but my modern Hebrew is pretty weak. So I need to get that in better shape. So I'm, I'm only able to go so far in my, in my witness. Otherwise, I just have to quote scripture. You know, that's all I can do, which is great. But they're, they are furious because the Jesus they know, to, to them, he was this arch deceiver and, and this false teacher who led Israel astray. And, and it goes straight from Jesus, the New Testament, to the Holocaust. That's, that's how they view things. Mm. As I'm standing there, Scott, and watching this one man spit on the ground at Jesus' name and say, we don't believe in him and just curse him because of the what they understand and, and the, the, the evil in his own heart. I'm standing there thinking, I wonder how God's going to save people like this. Wow. I, I wonder how he's going to open their eyes. What kind of vision is the word going to open up to them? How's it going to happen? Cause I know that I know it's going to happen. No, it doesn't guarantee the salvation of any Jewish person today. And it certainly does not touch on the salvation of those who died without knowing him. And we mourn them being lost but it does speak of something that will happen yes. in the future. All right, we'll be right back and go straight to your calls on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. Michael Brown Delighted to be with you. You know, I, I remember the day after I got arrested and, and harassed by ultra-Orthodox Jew in, in Israel, a, a real troublemaker. And I, I was walking the next day to meet with some Jewish-believing friends. It's about a, a half-hour, 45-minute walk in the morning. And I was walking through Israel, and I was just saying to myself, my people, my home, yeah, the opposition's there. Listen, I expect my expectation, my, my understanding of Scripture, and just what's in my heart, is that as we get closer and closer to the end of the age, that a lot of what we saw in the Gospels and Acts in Israel, the conflict over the Gospel be between the Jews who oppose faith in Jesus and the Jews who follow Jesus, we're going to see almost the same things play out 
which would also suggest there'll be more government power for the very religious. We shall see. But, but Scott, in Israel, I'm sitting with my friend Scott Volk, uh, right now, Prime Minister Netanyahu has called for new elections. Nothing like this has ever happened where you're elected, can't get a coalition government. Okay, let's have new elections. Kind of paralyzes the government. Evangelical Christians in America, they're largely rooting for Netanyahu and think he's the man. Uh, Messianic Jews within Israel, there's a lot more division over who to vote for or who not to vote for. But the concern is that if Prime Minister Netanyahu is reelected, he's so strong in many ways, Israel's security. He's such a great ambassador for Israel. The nations has strong relations with, with President Trump right now. But to get his coalition really means he has to work with ultra-Orthodox. And then that means that that can make it difficult for his Jewish believers in Jesus or people making Aliyah emigrating to Israel as Jewish believers in Jesus. So it's, it's one of these difficult situations to sort out. Do you find a wide range of opinion among Jewish believers in Israel on the elections? Very wise. As a matter of fact, I was there on the day when uh, the deadline happened to where he couldn't get his coalition together. And uh, having dinner with one of my friends who uh, might not necessarily be right or left-leaning, but is very, very concerned about this whole issue with the Orthodox because he's he's immersed in a community where maybe uh, believers are getting married or want to make Aliyah. I, I think in situations like this, and, and even in America, you know, so many of us, you know, we're raised a certain way. We're, we're raised either in Democratic or Republican households. But when, when believers simply bow and say, Lord, I know it's you who put men and women in places, you raise up kings, you're the one who, who puts leaders in our place. I think the best thing that we can do for our government and the people of Israel is to pray for God's purposes yep, yep. to be established and try to put our own political leanings, however biblical we may feel that they are, put them aside and say, Lord, you raise up the one who's going to be glo- who's going to glorify you most through his or her leadership and, and then rest in that. And, and I think... I think that would go a long way into seeing God's man or woman in power. And you have a great line, Scott, about having God's heart for, for Israel in terms of Israelis, Palestinians, and how you can have a wrong heart or right heart. Could you share that again? Well, well, here's what I like to say. I, I like to say if you look at Israel through a political lens, you're going to end up hating either Arabs or Jews or both. If you look at Israel through a biblical lens, you'll end up loving both Arabs and Jews. The, politi- mm. the biblical lens is the key because it leaves no room for hatred. You know, sometimes people will say, well, are you're pro-Israel. And I just have to back up a second. And even that terminology, pro-Israel, seems to intimate that if you're pro-Israel, you're anti-Arab. You know, God is pro-Israel. God is pro-Arab. God is pro people. So I'd like, to, if there's any way possible that we can remove our political um, ideologic, uh, ideologies, just peel those away. Go to the Bible. What, what does God say? You know, God has made amazing uh, promises to Ishmael and his seed. He's made amazing promises to Israel and to uh, Jacob and his offspring. I'm, I'm uh, desirous to see Jewish and Arab people not try to find common grounds politically, but try to find common grounds biblically and go after the God of the Bible and watch him be glorified in the land of Israel. Yeah, and, and I was just looking at a, a question here in the, in the YouTube chat from Jahin or Yahin, and he was wondering, he or she, wondering as to 
whether the big problem with the ultra-Orthodox is that they don't serve in the military. Well, that's one issue. In other words, uh, Israelis resent the fact that ultra-Orthodox can have power control. For example, you can't get married in Israel without an Orthodox rabbi. And, and, and the only Judaism that's fully recognized in Israel is Orthodox. So there's a lot of control the Orthodox have. Some Israelis just go to Cyprus, uh, nearby Cyprus, to just have a secular marriage because they don't want to have a traditional marriage or, or anything like that. So there's resentment about, hey, you don't even serve in the military. We all serve in the military. And you're putting, trying to put your standards on us and make us live by, by yeah, it's Torah, but we don't, we don't follow it the same way you do. And then the other thing is, that the goal of the very religious Jew is to study all day for the, for the man to study, for the wife to be raising the children, etc., and, and, and for them to be devoted to Torah. So that means that they live on subsistence level, poverty level, uh, and they're happy to do that so they can devote their days to, to praying and studying. And they say, Hey, that's helping Israel. Our prayers and studies are more important than any, any weapons in the IDF. And it's, we're, we're studying 16, 18 hours a day, et cetera, and they're having families, 10, 12, 14 children. But then that also means that they get government welfare. So Israelis think, I'm helping to pay for you to study all day. You're not even fighting in the army, and then you're controlling some of the society. So, yeah, there is resentment over that, understandably. All right, let's go to Paul in Bellevue, Washington. Thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how are you? Doing very well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I just got a question about uh, Jewish identity that's passed to the mother or matrilineal descent. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, I know that um, like several years ago, I, I I was exploring my own Jewish identity. My mother's mother's mother was Jewish. And so I was went to a Chabad, and this was like nine years ago, and they I, I was forthcoming with them. I told them, hey, I'm a believer in Yeshua, but I'm exploring my Jewish identity as can I come and, like, you know, attend your school, you know, for a while? And so they graciously accepted me, but they required that I, like, show them my family tree because they wanted to make sure I was Jewish and my Judaism was passed through the line of the mother. But, um, and I went with them to Israel, and it was all good, and that they actually arranged for me to meet with the counter-missionary for Judaism to try to talk me out of my belief in Yeshua. Yeah, do you remember who that was, the counter-missionary? Uh, this was in Los Angeles, so the counter-missionary was Rabbi Kravitz. Ben Sion Kravitz. Yeah, he's refused to you debate know? me or have dialogue with me for decades. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Oh, okay, that's too bad. I would love to see that. I mean, other than the fact that he was antagonistic with my uh, Christian beliefs, he was a you know respectful and nice guy. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he's very very sincere, and I'm sure there, there are many fine qualities uh, about him as well. Yes, yeah, so, so thank God for his keeping power and for the reality of faith in Yeshua, because you're always going to get hit with arguments that you don't have answers to and, unless you, you, this is strongly your background. But the reality of God's work in our lives is, is hard to deny that. And then Scripture, Scott, go I ahead. Just, I just want to encourage this, brother. We're going to be in Newcastle, which is maybe 15 minutes from Bellevue, Washington, in two weekends, September, I'm sorry, June 21st to 23rd, Dr. Brown will be speaking on Friday night, the 21st, right. at uh, the congregation called Beit Tikva Congregation in uh, Newcastle. So if there's any I'm way that you can... Florida. I'm, I'm moving to Florida on the 20th. Oh! <laughs> well, just change the mood. <laughs> change the mood. But, but anyway, yes, yeah, so the, the question about Jewish uh, identity, that's, that's Paul, yeah, you, you could make a case biblically that 
the Israelite identity would come through the male. In other words, you have a a man with foreign wives and, and still the genealogy is traced through him. However, the rabbinic argument, and this does not seem to be settled in the first century. In New Testament times, it appears that this was not yet settled. But uh, and, and you can see that in, I heard in that Acts. Some of my research is talking about the rabbinical council of Jania or Yafne, where it was possibly discussed, but I guess some people are doubting that that event ever happened. Uh, well, well, yeah, whether the event happened or not, in traditional Judaism, it's, it's, it's a major turning point event and things being codified, etc. But bottom line, it seems that there was still debate about whether you trace descent through mother or father at, at, at the time of the book of Acts. Because Timothy is circumcised, his mother was Jewish, and, and Paul has him circumcised, so there wouldn't be any stumbling block there. But when there was pressure to right. circumcise Titus, who was a Gentile in Galatians 2, Paul says no. But, but just really quickly, the, the rabbinic argument is, look, in, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the men had married foreign wives and they divorced them, they not only sent away the wife, but they sent away the children, because the children were also considered foreigners. And you could just say that was social. I mean, who else is going to raise the children? The men are out working. The, the women are going to raise the children. But that's part of what the rabbinic argument comes from. Uh, Reformed Jews would say it's either the mother or the father. Many Messianic Jews would say if your mother or father are Jewish and you've been raised with a Jewish consciousness, then you should identify as Jewish. And again, this does not make us saved or not saved. It's just part of our, our spiritual heritage and background. Hey, let's continue to pray for the rabbis and the counter-missionaries that God would open their hearts and their minds. Together for Israel Conference is in Seattle. September 21, 22, and 23. I'm sorry, June June 21, 22, 23. You, me, Bob Gladstone, Paul Wilbur. It's going to be a great time together. Awesome. So there's info. Just go to askdrbrown.org, click on itinerary, and join us next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Israel, May 11th to 20th, with Scott Volk, myself, the, the tour, the trip of a lifetime. It, you'll see it is worth every dime. EsterTobrown.org, right on the homepage, you'll see the banner. All right, back with your questions tomorrow. God bless you.